0: This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Well, open your Bibles today to Mark chapter 8. We're getting back to our study of Mark. Today, it's been great to have a couple of weeks of uh, rest, and I'm thankful for these guys filling in, Corby uh, preaching and playing, and uh, Joe preaching uh, last week, and uh, Steve helping us so much, as well as Michael's uh, with his family in Texas. But we're going to get back to our study here of Mark, and we are in the 8th chapter of Mark, and we're going to begin with verse 22 today, and look at verses 22 through 30. This is the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida. It's Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. It's about physical blindness, spiritual blindness, uh, physical sight, spiritual sight. And it's about how Jesus heals our blindness. Yes, He can heal from physical blindness, but the far more dangerous kind is spiritual blindness. Let's look at this text together. Mark 8 the beginning with verse 22, and if you'll follow along in your copy of God's Word. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people but they looked like trees walking then jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly and he sent him to his home saying do not even enter the village and jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked his disciples Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. They strictly charged them to tell no one about Him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to stand for you in the midst of a world of idolatry. We pray that you would help us to take the stand for you and bear witness to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that we would confess Him as King and that we would live out that confession. Speak to us today through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Despite the fact that she was blind from infancy, Fanny Crosby made her life count for Jesus Christ. By the time that she passed away in 1915, Fanny Crosby had written over 8,000 hymns and gospel songs, many of which we still sing today. Now she had reflected very deeply on the meaning of her blindness. And she had come to realize that in God's gracious plan, in God's gracious providence, that His plan for her life was that she not be distracted by external things, the things around her, so that she could channel all of her internal energy and imagination into the world of music and songwriting. But she looked forward to the day when she would one day be able to see. And Fanny Crosby said this. She said, if I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind. For when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Savior. Today, we're talking about blindness. And we're going to see this healing of the blind man of Bethsaida. But to fully understand what is happening in this healing, this physical healing, we need to understand the context of what the disciples are going through spiritually. Now, what has just happened literally right before this in the preceding verses? Before this healing, Jesus has looked at His disciples and He said to them in verses 18-21, through 21, Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And the seven for the four thousand. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? You see, this healing from, from physical blindness takes place in the context of his disciples' spiritual blindness. And as Fanny Crosby knew, and as Jesus knew, it's spiritual blindness that is infinitely more dangerous. And so what we're going to see is Jesus heal and restore physical sight. But more than that, much more importantly than that, He wants His disciples, He wants you and me to have spiritual sight. Now let's look first at at physical sight, beginning in verse 22. The text says they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So uh, Bethsaida, if you're looking at at the Holy Land in the time of Jesus and... Bethsaida is here. It is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And the word Bethsaida means house of the fisher. They were right on the shoreline. So fishing was the main industry. House of the fisher. And we know from earlier in this gospel that Jesus has called you and me to be fishers, right? Right? We saw in chapter 1 and verse 17 that Jesus says, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. To follow Jesus Christ is to look up to God in faith and out to our neighbors in love. And part of looking out to our neighbors in love is that we want them to come to understand and experience the love of God in Christ. Now, we see a beautiful example in verse 22 of some people who, who loved their friend, their family member. We're not sure who this blind man was exactly to these people who brought him before Jesus. Could have been a combination of both. Maybe friends, family members, they're burdened for him. They love him. And they are determined to place him before Jesus for healing. But we know people in our lives that suffer from a far more dangerous kind of blindness. They are spiritually blind. We have people in our lives that are spiritually blind. And What can we do to get them before Jesus? I want to mention three things. First of all, we can bring them before Jesus in prayer. You, you notice here in verse 22 that some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Do you pray for lost friends and family members by name? Do you beg God to open the eyes of their hearts to see the Savior and trust Him? We can bring our spiritually blind friends and family members, and those God brings into our lives, we can bring them before the Savior in our prayers, first of all second, we can share the good news about the Savior with them. And do not assume that they understand. I'm in conversation with people who are spiritually blind enough to know that many of them do not understand. They have all kinds of false conceptions of the gospel. Confusion. Do you know that God has put you in their life? to clear that up, to to tell the good news in a way that is is clear to them so that they can understand God has strategically put you in their life. You may work with them. They may may be a part of your family or your, your extended family. It may be Someone that God's brought into your life through recreation or your kids' activities or someone who goes to your school. I mean, on and on and on. But listen, God has put you as His man, His woman, His boy, His girl, His agent to make it clear, to share the good news of Jesus with them. Don't assume that they understand it. And even if they do, most people don't come to Christ the first time that they hear the gospel. We have to hear it usually many, many times before we trust Christ. So we can bring them before the Savior in prayer. We can tell them about the Savior. And third, we can bring them to a church where the Savior is proclaimed. Most people come to Christ as a result of a team effort. It's usually a team of people that God uses. I want you to think of me as your teammate your ally, in seeking to win your friends and family members to Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. If you'll bring your friends here, I promise you, they will hear a message from God's Word in in a way that they can understand. It's going to be explained clearly. It's going to be illustrated. It's going to be applied. And the gospel, the good news, is going to be proclaimed every Sunday. I'm your teammate. Your brothers and sisters seated here around you, we're all your teammates. A lot of times what people need to come to Christ is that they need to be under the preaching of the Word. They need to be part of a worship experience, maybe part of a small group experience. They see Christians sharing with one another, loving one another. It breaks down all kinds of barriers, but you have to bring them. Bring them bring them to a church where Sunday by Sunday the Savior is proclaimed and they can hear about Him and encounter Him. Okay? That's what we can do. To bring spiritually blind people in our lives to Christ. Alright, now let's look at this particular healing in verses 23 through 25. And He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, He asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now this healing is unique in the Gospels. It takes place in two stages. In fact, it's the only one that takes place in two stages. And what's that all about? Well, here's what it's not about. It's not because Jesus didn't quite get it right the first time, and so he has to do it again. All right, we have seen Jesus do far greater miracles than this with just a word. It's not about that. Something else is going on here. Okay, a larger point is being made. Think about what is going on with the disciples. Think about what's happening with them spiritually. Think about what Jesus has just said in verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? See, the disciples are in process, right? Just like we are. We're moving from no sight to partial sight. And one day we're moving to complete Sight. Apart from Christ, we're blind. When we trust in Jesus, He heals our blindness. But as a new Christian, do we have 2020 spiritual vision? No. We're growing. We're in process. And we should be praying like Paul prays for the, the church at Ephesus. That that God would, would open our eyes to see clearer, to see more. Look at what Paul prays for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1 and and what he prays for, for, for us, Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the glorious, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul here is praying for a church. He's praying for Christians. But he's praying that God would, would enlighten our eyes to see more, more of his hope, more of his love, more of his spiritual riches that we would get a clearer, greater vision of God and who He is. His great love for us. And one day we're going to have that. One day it's going to be complete. One day faith is going to become sight. And Paul tells us about that in 1 Corinthians 13, when he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. One day that's going to happen. Until then, we're in process. Now, this should help you understand yourself better. It should help you understand your brothers and sisters in Christ better. Right? We should be praying for ourselves and for one another that God would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see and grasp more. More of his love, more of his spiritual riches. But we need to understand we're in process. None of us has arrived. One day, faith's going to become sight. It's going to happen. Right? But we're there. uh, We're not there yet. None of us has arrived fully. We're all growing. That helps us understand the purpose of the church too. Right? Our purpose is to make disciples. To help people grow. To help people come to greater and greater understanding and vision of the gospel. Physical sight. Spiritual sight. Let's talk about spiritual sight here. Spiritual sight. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Okay, so now if we look at our map again... Um, they have moved, they're moving from Bethsaida here on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee up here to Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles. It's a, it's a, it's an uphill walk. <laughs> You're, they were moving from 700 feet below sea level around the Sea of Galilee all the way up to the slopes of Mount Hermon. Twenty-five miles away, but boy, it was uphill all the way. And from Caesarea Philippi, from, from the slopes of Mount Hermon, they could look down and get just this majestic vision of, of, of the valley of Galilee stretched out beneath them. But Jesus wants them to get another kind of vision too. He, he wants them to get away from the crush of ministry in Galilee and as we've seen him do frequently before, he takes them on this retreat, gets them away from that everyday crush of ministry in Galilee, and he he gets them in in a a, a more isolated place, and he wants them to to catch a greater vision of who he is. And that's what's going to happen. And it's crucial for us to do that too. If we don't do that, we're like a hamster spinning on the wheel, right? Right? We, we've got to take time, block out time to be alone with the Savior, retreat, get alone with Him, it, whether that means for, you know, just a few minutes, maybe an hour, a couple of hours, maybe a couple of days, or even a couple of weeks, and, 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 and catch a fresh vision of who God is, be refreshed and restored. And so we've seen Jesus do this again and again. He's doing it here. And in this particular circumstance, Jesus is going to laser in and he wants their eyes to be opened to a far greater degree than they had been before to his true identity and so in the latter part of verse 27 we see that on the way he asked his disciples who do people say that i am now most rabbis in jesus's day didn't ask questions like this. In fact, they really didn't ask questions at all. They answered the questions of their students. But Jesus, as we've seen, asks a lot of questions, brilliant questions, open-ended questions to draw them out, to draw out the hearts of people. Very important in in, in teaching. You to ask open-ended questions to kind of get people talking and draw them out. And draw out their hearts. And Jesus did that a lot. And he does that here. And the first question that he asks is a very non-threatening one. He says in verse 27, Who do people say that I am? Now we don't have any trouble talking about what other people believe, right? We'll talk all day about that. Here's what other people believe. It's not threatening. It's not personal. We can all talk about what somebody else believes. And so... They readily do that. Verse 28, they told him, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. Now, these were all exalted, revered figures in Israel's history. They were all prophets. John the Baptist, Elijah. Okay, all the other prophets, all of them were exalted figures. But this answer is incredibly inadequate. One of the prophets. Because Jesus Christ is not one of anything. Jesus is the one. And, and, and now, having sort of opened the door with this non-threatening question, Jesus is going to step through it with the ultimate personal question. Life's ultimate personal question because eternity hangs on it jesus lasers in steps through the open door and he says in verse 29 but who do you say that i am see it's not enough to parrot the answers of others even if they were the right answers it's not enough just to know the right answers, right? To know what your parents think or what your Christian friends think about Jesus. Even if it's the right stuff, it's not enough to, know, to just know what they believe and confess what they believe. You must take the stand and bear witness to Jesus Christ. Who do you say that He is? Is He your Savior, your King, Peter steps up. Verse 29, Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Now, Christ means Messiah. So Peter is confessing him as the Messiah, and we know from Matthew's account of this, that his answer was actually a little more expansive. Peter confessed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that is a fascinating response. First of all, he's confessing Jesus as the Messiah. But then he says, You are the the Son of the living God. Now we've heard so far in Mark, demons confess Jesus as the Son. The demons, whenever Jesus heals somebody who's possessed by demons, the demons that were inhabiting the person recognized Jesus immediately and they would fall before Him in terror and say, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? We've heard the Father confess that Jesus is His Son. Remember at His baptism, jesus there comes a voice from heaven. Jesus comes up out of the water father's voice from heaven says you are my beloved son so we've heard demons confess it we've heard the father's voice confess it but we haven't even seen a human being get even close to this before okay so it's remarkable in that way but then peter says you are the christ the son of the living god And this was fascinating because of where they were. In Caesarea Philippi, they were surrounded by dead gods, false gods, idols. Caesarea Philippi was named after the Caesar who was worshipped as a god. But most famously, Caesarea Philippi was known as for its sanctuary to Pan. Let's take a look at an image here. Um, this is of Philippi. And into the, the rock side of this mountain, the pagans had, had built this sanctuary of Pan. Pan was a false god. He was the god of the flocks. They thought he was half man, half god goat and so they had built the sanctuary to pan It actually the building would have jutted out from it was built into the rock it would have jutted out and you can see uh, still some of the ruins here to that um, and you can see in other angles you can see columns and things that were a part of this, this place that was in honor of an idol this confession of Jesus as the Christ the son of the living God is made in a place where they were surrounded by idols. Now listen, we are called to make that confession and to follow Jesus Christ in a world and in a culture where we are surrounded by idols. Okay? We're surrounded by them. Idols of greed and money and materialism. Idols of fame and prestige and a lust for power and position. Idols of sensuality, sexuality, pornography, which surrounds us. And then the theologian John Calvin said that our own hearts are like idol factories that continually are manufacturing them. Idols of the heart, a desire for uh, control and significance and comfort and on and on and on. We're surrounded by idols and we are called to confess Jesus Christ and to stand for Jesus Christ in the midst of such a world. You know, Ray Ortland tells us to imagine our hearts as like a, a committee. <laughs> and imagine, imagine that within our heart, there's this committee that's meeting. And there's a long table, okay, and, uh, where a committee would meet. And there are leather chairs that are around the, around the table. Maybe bottles of water on the table, And maybe everybody's got their laptops out, okay, and the committee is getting ready to meet. And around the table sit all of ourselves, okay? Our social self is there at the table, okay? Who we are around our friends. Our private self has a seat at the table. That's who we are when no one's looking. Our church self has a seat at the table. Who we are at church and our Christian friends. Our work self has a place at the table. Who we are at work or at school. Our school self. Your student. Our sexual self is there at the table. The way that we deal with sexuality. Our financial self has a seat at the table. The way that we deal with money. And there are many others. There are others. And they're all seated around the table. And look, they are at odds. They're agitated, bickering with one another. The committee can't decide on anything. They are in each other's faces. They're debating and arguing back and forth. And there's conflict. They can never come to a unanimous decision about anything. Well, how do we deal with that? There are a couple of ways that we can do that. Ray Ortland says one way that we can try to deal with that is to invite Jesus to be a part of the committee. Come on, Jesus. We'll give you a seat at the table. Right? You can have a vote too. That doesn't work. First of all, it would only make things more complicated. And second, Jesus doesn't want to be on your committee. He doesn't want to be added to to your crowded life, to the idols in your life. He's not one of anything. Remember, He's the one. The other thing that we can do, and the only thing that will work, is to come in and fire the committee. Fire the committee. And say, Jesus Christ is now in charge. Jesus is in charge. He's in charge of all of you, of everything, every aspect of life. He is king. He is Lord. No more debating back and forth. No more votes. The committee is fired. Jesus takes over. You give Jesus the controls of your life. You say, Lord, I've made a mess of it. I want you to rule and reign. See, following Jesus Christ is not adding Jesus to the idols in your life. It is subtracting your idols, okay, and confessing Him and following Him as Savior and King. That's the stand. That's the confession that we must make. Let's pray together. As we bow before the Lord right now, if you're here today and you have never definitively turned from sin and self and said, I want to follow Jesus Christ, we want to invite you to do that. The work has been done. Christ has died for, our, for sinners like you and me. He is risen from the grave, as we sang earlier. New life, eternal life, is available to you. But you must receive it. And the way that you do that is to turn. Repent. Turn from trying to do life your own way apart from Him. And turn to Jesus. And say, Lord, I trust in You. I rest in what You have done for me. And I give You my life. I turn over the controls to you. And Jesus tells us that that when we do that, that we're to acknowledge Him before others. In a moment, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. If your heart is to follow Jesus Christ, as others stand in just a moment, we want to invite you to come. I'm going to be right here at the front. Just come share with me what God is doing in your life. I'd love to pray with you. We'd love to come alongside you and help you to begin in your journey with Christ as his disciple. If you're here today and God's speaking to you and you say, I want to be a part of the family of God, because we cannot follow Jesus Christ in isolation, make no mistake about it. We have to have a church family. We want to invite you to come and say, I want to be a part of this family and what God is doing here. Step out for him today, for his honor in his glory so father speak now we pray to each one of our hearts have your way in our lives now help us to stand for you we ask it in Jesus name amen let's stand together as we sing I hope you've been blessed by this message Christ is the answer for every need now and for all eternity I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.